0: section fourteen of the secret house by edgar wallace this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by don w jenkins chapter fourteen as t b had said poltavo had returned from his brief sojourn in great bradley and emerged into society a new and more radiant being than ever he had been before There had always been some doubt as to the Count's exact financial position, and cautious hostesses had hesitated before they had invited this plausible and polished man to their social functions. There were whispers adverse as to his standing. There were even bold people who called into question his right to employ the title which graced his visiting cards. There were half a dozen Poltavos in the Almanach de Gotha, any one of whom might have been ernesto for so vague is the polish hierarchy that it was impossible to fix him to any particular family and he himself answered careless inquiries with a cryptic smile which might have meant anything but with his return to london after his brief absence there was no excuse for any hostess even the most sceptical in refusing to admit him to social equality on the ground of poverty The very day he returned he acquired the lease of a house in Burlington Gardens, purchased two motor-cars, paying cash down for an early delivery, gave orders left and right for the enrichment of his person and his domicile, and in forty-eight hours had established himself in a certain mode of living which suggested that he had never known any other. He had had his lesson, and had profited thereby. He had experienced an unpleasant fright though he might not admit it to dr fall and his master it was nevertheless a fact that realizing as he did that he had stood face to face with a particularly unpleasant death he had been seized by a panic which had destroyed his ordinary equilibrium you may trust me my friend he muttered to himself as he sorted over the papers on his brand-new desk in his brand-new study in a house which was still redolent of the painter's art and presence you may trust me so long as i find it convenient for you to trust me but you may be sure that never again will i give you the benefit of my presence in the secret house he had come back with a large sum of money to carry out his employer's plans there were a hundred agents through the country particulars of whom poltavo now had in his possession innocent agents and guilty agents agents in high places and active agents in the servants hall undoubtedly gossip's corner was a useful institution farrington had not made a great deal of money from its sale indeed as often as not it showed a dead loss every year but he paid well for contributions which were sent to him and offered a price which exceeded the standard rate of pay for such paragraphs as were acceptable men and women with a malicious desire to score off some enemy would send him items which the newspapers would publish if they concerned somebody who might not be bled many of these facts in an amended form were in fact printed but more often than not the paragraphs and articles which came to the unknown editor dealt with scandal which it was impossible to put into print nevertheless the informant would be rewarded in some far away country home a treacherous servant would receive postal orders to his or her great delight, but the news she or he had sent in their malice, a tit-bit concerning some poor erring woman or some foolish man, would never see the light of day, and the contributor might look in vain for the spicy paragraph which had been composed with such labor. The unfortunate subjects of domestic treachery would receive in a day or two a letter from the mysterious Montague Follock retailing to their horror those precious secrets which they had imagined none knew but themselves they would not associate the gossipy little rag which sometimes found its way to the servants hall with the magnificent demand of this prince of blackmailers and more often than not they would pay to the utmost of their ability to avoid exposure it was not only the servants hall which supplied montague follick with all the material for his dastardly work There were men scarcely deserving the name, and women lost to all sense of honor, who found in this little journal means by which they could come back at those favored people who had offered them directly or indirectly some slight offense. Sometimes the communication would reach the gossip anonymously, but if the facts retailed were sufficiently promising, one of Follock's investigators would be told off to discover how much truth there was in it a bland letter would follow and the wretched victim would emerge from the transaction the poorer in pocket and often in health for this remorseless and ruthless man destroyed more than fortunes he trafficked in human lives there had been half a dozen mysterious suicides which had been investigated by scotland yard and found directly traceable to letters received in the morning and burnt by the despairing victim before his untimely and violent departure from life the office of the paper was situated at the top of a building in fleet street one back room comprised the whole of its editorial space and one door man its entire staff it was his duty to receive the correspondence as it came and to convey it to the cloakroom of a london station an hour later it would be called for by a messenger and transferred to another cloakroom eventually it would arrive in the possession of the man who was responsible for the contents of the paper Many of these letters contained contributions in the ordinary way of business, a story or two contributed by a more or less well-known writer. Follock, or Farrington, needed these outside contributions not only to give the newspaper a verisimilitude of genuineness, but also to fill the columns of the journal. He himself devoted his energies to two pages of shrewdly edited tit-bits of information about the great they were carefully written, often devoid of any reference to the person whom they affected, and were more or less innocuous. But in each batch of letters there was always one or two which gave the master blackmailer an opportunity for extracting money from people, who had been betrayed by servants or friends. There was a standing offer in the gossip of five guineas for any paragraph which might be useful to the editor, and it is a commentary upon the morality of human nature that there were times when farrington paid out nearly a thousand pounds a week for the information which his unscrupulous contributors gave him there was work here for poltavo he was an accomplished scholar and a shrewd man of affairs if farrington had been forced to accept his services having accepted them he could do no less than admit the wisdom of his choice In his big study with the door locked, Poltavo carefully sorted the correspondence, thinking the while. If he played his cards well, he knew his future was assured. The consequence of his present employment, the misery it might bring to the innocent and to the foolishly guilty alike, did not greatly trouble him. He was perfectly satisfied with his own position in the matter. He had found a means of livelihood which offered enormous rewards and the minimum of risk in his brief stay at the secret house farrington had impressed upon him the necessity for respecting trifles if you can make five shillings out of a working man was his dictum make it we cannot afford to despise the smallest amount and, in consequence, Poltavo was paying as much attention to the ill-written and illiterate scrawls which came from the east end of London as he was to the equally illiterate efforts of the underbutler describing an error of his master's in a northern ducal seat. Poltavo went through the letters systematically, putting this epistle to the right and that to the left, this to make food for the newspaper, that as a subject for further operations. Presently he stopped and looked up at the ceiling so she must marry frank doughton within a week he said to himself in wonder yes farrington had insisted upon carrying out his plans knowing the power he held and he poltavo had accepted the ultimatum in all meekness of spirit i must be losing my nerve he muttered married in a week am i to give her up this gracious beautiful girl with her future or without her fortune he smiled and it was not a pleasant smile to see no my friend i think you have gone a little too far you depended too much upon my acquiescence ernesto mon ami you have to do some quick thinking between now and next monday a telephone buzzed at his elbow and he took it off and listened yes he asked and then he recognized the speaker's voice and his voice went soft and caressing for it was the voice of doris gray that he heard can you see me to-morrow she asked i can see you to-day my lady at once if you wish it he said lightly there was a little hesitation at the other end of the wire if you could i should feel glad she said i am rather troubled not seriously i hope he asked anxiously i have had a letter from someone she said meaningly i think i understand he replied someone wishes you to do a thing which is a repugnant to you i cannot say that she said and there was despair in her voice all i know is that i am bewildered by the turn events have taken "'Do you know the contents of the letter?' "'I know,' he said gently. "'It was my misfortune to be the bearer of the communication.' "'What do you think?' she asked after a while. "'You know what I think,' he said passionately. "'Can you expect me to agree to this?' The intensity of his voice frightened her, and she rapidly strove to bring him down to a condition of normality. "'Come to-morrow,' she said hastily. "'I would like to talk it over with you.' "'I will come at once,' he said." perhaps you had better not she hesitated i am coming at once he said firmly and hung up the receiver in that moment of resentment against the tyranny of his employer he forgot all the dangers which the secret house threatened all its swift and wicked vengeance he only knew with the instinct of a beast of prey who saw its quarry stolen under its very eyes the loss which this man was inflicting upon him five minutes later he was in brakely square with the girl she was pale and worried there were dark circles round her eyes which spoke eloquently of a sleepless night i do not know what to do she said i am very fond of frank i can speak to you can i not count poltavo you may confide in me absolutely he said gravely and yet i am not so fond of him she went on that i can marry him yet then why do you he asked how can i disobey this she held the letter out He took it from her hand with a little smile, walked to the fireplace, and dropped it gently upon the glowing coals. "'I am afraid you are not carrying out instructions,' he said playfully. There was something in this action which chilled her. He was thinking more of his safety and his duty to Farrington than he was of her, she thought, a curiously inconsistent view to take in all the circumstances, but it was one which had an effect upon her after actions.' now listen to me he said with his kindly smile you have not to trouble about this you are to go your own way and allow me to make it right with farrington he is a very headstrong and ambitious man and there is some reason perhaps why he should want you to marry Doughton. but as to that i will gain a little more information in the meantime you are to dismiss the matter from your mind leaving everything to me she shook her head i am afraid i cannot do that she said Unless I have a letter from my guardian expressing wishes to the contrary, I must carry out his desires. It is dreadful, dreadful, she wrung her hands piteously, that I should be placed in this wretched position. How can I help him by marrying Frank Doughton? How can I save him? Can you tell me? He shook his head. Have you communicated with Mr. Doughton? She nodded. I sent him a letter, she hesitated. I have kept a draft of it. Would you like to see it? a little shade of bitter anger swept across his face but with an effort he mastered himself i should he said evenly she handed the sheet of paper to him dear frank it ran for some reason which i cannot explain to you it is necessary that the marriage which my uncle desired should take place within the next week you know my feelings towards you that i do not love you and that if it were left to my own wishes this marriage would not take place but for a reason which i cannot at the moment give you i must act contrary to my own wishes this is not a gracious nor an easy thing to say to you but i know you well enough with your large generous heart and your kindly nature to realize that you will understand something of the turmoil of feelings which at present dominate my heart poltavo finished reading and put the letter back on the table he walked up and down the room without saying a word then he turned on her suddenly madonna he said in the liquid southern accents of his he had spent his early life in italy and the address came naturally to him if frank doughton were i would you hesitate a look of alarm came into the girl's eyes he saw then his mistake he had confounded her response to his sympathy with a deeper feeling which she did not possess in that one glimpse he saw more than she knew herself that of the two frank was the preferable he raised his hand and arrested her stammering speech there is no need to tell me he smiled perhaps some day you will realize that the love count poltavo offered you was the greatest compliment that has ever been paid to you for you have inspired the one passion of my life which is without baseness and without ulterior motives he said this in a tremulous voice and possibly he believed it he had said as much before to women whom he had long since forgotten but who carried the memory of his wicked face to their graves now he said briskly We must wait for Mr. Doughton's answer. He has already answered, she said. He telephoned me. He smiled. How typically English, almost American, in his hustle. And when is the happy event to take place? He bantered. Oh, please, don't, don't. She raised her hands and covered her face. I hardly know that even now I have the strength to carry out my uncle's wishes. But when? he asked more soberly. In three days. Frank is getting a special license. We are she hesitated and he waited we are going to paris she said with a pink flush in her face but frank wishes that we shall live she stopped again and then went on almost defiantly that we shall live apart although we shall not be able to preserve that fact a secret he nodded i understand he said therein mr doughton shows an innate delicacy which i greatly appreciate again that little sense of resentment swept through her the patronage in his tone the indefinable suggestion of possession was she thought uncalled for that he should approve of frank in that possessive manner was not far removed from an impertinence have you thought he asked after a while what would happen if you did not marry frank doughton in accordance with your uncle's wishes what terrible calamity would fall upon your uncle she shook her head i do not know she said frankly i am only beginning to get a dim idea of mr farrington's real character I always thought he was a kindly and considerate man. Now I know him to be, she stopped, and Poltavo supplied her deficiency of speech. You know him to be a criminal, he smiled, a man who has for years been playing upon the fears and the credulity of his fellow-creatures. That must have been a shocking discovery, Miss Gray, but at least you will acquit him of having stolen your fortune. It is all very terrible, she said. Somehow every day brings it to me. My aunt, Lady Dinsmore, was right lady dinsmore is always right he said lightly it is one of the privileges of her age and position but in what respect was she right the girl shook her head i do not think it is loyal of me to tell you but i must she always thought mr farrington was engaged in some shady business and has warned me time after time an admirable woman said poltavo with a sneer in three days he went on thoughtfully well much may happen in three days i must confess that i am anxious to know what would be the result of this marriage not taking place he did not wait for an expression of her views but with a curt little bow he ushered himself out of the room three days he found himself repeating as he made his way back to his house why should farrington be in such a frantic hurry to marry the girl off and why should he have chosen this penniless reporter this was a matter which required a great deal of examination two of those three days were dream days for frank doughton he could not believe it possible that such a fortune could be his but with his joy there ran the knowledge that he was marrying a woman who had no desire for such a union but she would learn to love him so he promised himself in his optimism and the assurance of his own love he had unbounded faith in himself and was working hard in these days not only upon his stories but upon the clue which the discovery of the belated letter afforded him He had carefully gone through the parish list to discover the Annies of the past fifty years. In this he was somewhat handicapped by the fact that there must have been hundreds of Annies who enjoyed no separate existence, married women who had no property qualification to appear on ratepayers' lists, anonymous Annies who perhaps employed that as a pet name, instead of the name with which they had been christened. He had one or two clues, and was following these industriously for the moment however he must drop this work and concentrate his mind upon the tremendous and remarkable business which his coming marriage involved he had a series of articles to write for the monitor and he applied himself feverishly to this work it was two nights before his marriage that he carried the last of his work to the great newspaper office on the thames embankment and delivered his manuscript in person to the editor that smiling man offered his congratulations to the embarrassed youth i suppose we shall not be looking for any articles from you for quite a long time he said at parting i hope so said the other i do not see why i should starve because i am married my wife will be a very rich woman he said quietly but so far as i am concerned that will make no difference i do not intend taking one penny of her fortune the journalist clapped him on the shoulder Good lad, he said approvingly. The man who lives on his wife's income is a man who has ceased to live. That sounds like an epigram, smiled Frank. He looked at his watch as he descended the stairs. It was nine o'clock, and he had not dined. He would go up to an eating-house in Soho and have his frugal meal before he retired for the night. He had had a heavy day and a heavier day threatened on the morrow. Outside the newspaper office was a handsome new car, its lacquer-work shining in the electric light. Frank was passing when the chauffeur called to him. "'Excuse me, sir,' he said, touching his cap. "'Are you Mr. Frank Doughton?' "'That is my name,' said Frank, in surprise, for he did not recognize the man. "'I have been asked to call and pick you up, sir.' "'Pick me up?' asked the astonished Frank. "'By whom?' by sir george frederick said the man respectfully frank knew the name of the member of parliament and puzzled his brain as to whether he had ever met him but what does sir george want with me he asked He wanted five minutes conversation with you sir said the man it would have been churlish to have refused the member's request besides the errand would take him partly on his way he opened the door of the landolette and stepped in and as the door swung to behind him he found he was not alone in the car what is the he began when a powerful hand gripped his throat and he was swung backward on the padded seat as the car moved slowly forward and gathering speed as it went flew along the thames embankment with its prisoner chapter fourteen read by don w jenkins rancho san diego california